Hey, it's Rebecca with Jen Next. Just a heads up, we're going to be discussing topics like depression and suicide in today's episode. Please take care while listening, and if you need support, we have some mental health resources in the show notes. Hi, my name is Tokumba Adebui, and I'm a member of the Gen Next team, and this is Peace Out Poverty, the podcast that gives you a local perspective on social issues and shows you how you can get involved. United Way's Gen Next team started this show to explore the intricate ways poverty can impact the lives of folks in the Alberta capital region. In this episode, we've got our work cut out for us, because today we're exploring the relationship between poverty and mental health. That is, how poverty can impact your mental health, how poor mental health keeps folks in poverty, and hopefully, how we can work towards breaking the cycle. You don't need to look for very long to see that there's a strong connection between mental health and poverty. The tricky part is untangling the two. It's a cyclical issue without a clear starting point. And we know it's hard to address a problem without understanding the root cause. So let's break it down. First, let's talk mental health. According to the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, in any given year, one in five Canadians experience a mental illness or problem with addiction. And by the time Canadians hit 40 years old, one in two will have had a mental illness. We also know that your mental health and your physical health are connected. For example, people living with a mood disorder are at much higher risk of developing a long-term medical condition. Also, mental illness is a leading cause of disability in Canada. Now, let's talk about poverty. Alberta Health Services found that folks with lower socioeconomic status are more likely to be hospitalized for a mental health-related illness. Statistics Canada says Canadians in the lowest income group are three to four times more likely to report fair or poor mental health than Canadians in the highest income group. And lastly, the Edmonton Social Planning Council says that factors inherent to poverty, like the stress of living paycheck to paycheck, can also drive down your mental health. So to recap, mental illness is a common problem in Canada. Your mental health can leave you in a condition that makes it difficult to work or go to school. Without steady work or an education, you'll have difficulty earning a living wage. And if you do find work, the constant push to just get by eats away at your mental health even further, and so on and so on. And this is just one of the trends we can see between mental health and poverty. Poverty also impedes your access to steady housing, healthy food, and social connections, all of which are vitally important to your mental health. All that talk and we've just gone around in a circle again. If we want to learn how to break the pattern, we're definitely going to need to talk to some folks in the field. Folks like Dave Chown. So my name is Dave Chown. Uh, Pronouns are he, him, and I'm the portfolio manager of mental health at United Way. I work on our community investment team, and I work mostly with our mental health organizations. Dave acts like a bridge between United Way and community-serving organizations. He connects organizations to funding, government resources, and to one another— we sat down with him to discuss the state of mental health supports in the Alberta capital region. One thing I love about working for United Way, and it's just there's so many people doing some great work in our community. 
We fund uh, some impressive and important programs that are providing distress land support. They are providing walk-in counseling as well as uh, counseling programs as well. So there's a lot of really great work happening in the community. That said, you know, I think dating back even before the pandemic, about one in five people in Canada are ex- experiencing a mental health problem or illness. And, you know, with some of the COVID stats, that number may even be one in four right now. So Statistics Canada just released a report. And so that just means there are hundreds of thousands of Albertans accessing mental health services and supports. And there are hundreds of thousands of Albertans who aren't getting the mental health supports they need. About 70% of Canadians living with a mental health problem, illness, say those started in childhood. And even when we look at working population alone, I mean, a lot of the working population experiences mental health problems. One third of disability claims are related to mental illness, and that's affecting people in their prime and early welcome years as well. Mental health is huge. We've made some great strides in recent years addressing stigma and results and supports. But I mean, there's just so much more work to do. At this point, we have a pretty good picture of mental health across the country, but how do things look for someone trying to access the system here in Alberta right now? The Canadian Mental Health Association puts it best. And so we currently have a patchwork of hospitals, public health services, and community organizations doing their best to support mental health needs. But there's still far too many people that just don't have the capacity or they can't pay out of pocket to access some of these services. And so to access some of the community-based services, the subsidized services, or the community-sponsored supports, you know, sometimes it's they're on wait lists for months and months, and some of these people can't really afford to wait. Uh, it's not really that uncommon to hear someone who goes to a hospital emergency room with thoughts of suicide, and then they're sent home without a plan or without proper alignment to resources or supports that they might need. We're seeing greater need for addiction and substance use disorder. And again, some of the people can afford the programs or supports or recovery programs that they need. And so there's a lot of people doing some great work, but I feel there's a lot more we can do to help make sure that we can provide the support, especially in the midst of this pandemic. There's been increases in suicidal ideation and opioid and substance use, feelings of anxiety. The pandemic has touched us all. And if you're struggling beforehand, uh, odds are it's been really tough. At the best of times, trying to access the mental health support you need can feel like wandering a maze. And as Dave mentioned, we are not at the best of times. But Dave and his colleagues are working hard to streamline the process and raise awareness of the issue. One product of this work has been the Community Mental Health Action Plan. So the Community Mental Health Action Plan is really a group of members from government, nonprofit organizations, and individuals that came together just to help raise awareness for mental health, promote mental well-being, and start looking for solutions to the challenges in the mental health system, including, you know, access and prevention. And so it's a team of service providers that are really trying to look at systems as well as supports and compiling reliable lists of training that's available to make sure agencies have the info they need to provide meaningful supports, help reduce duplication in services, and even get involved in projects like when 211 Alberta was launched, a number of members from the Community Mental Health Action Plan worked with Community Mental Health Association of Greater Edmonton, as well as the Distress Line in Calgary as well. So there's been some great systemic things that this group has worked with, as well as some great successes, and just making sure 
organizations had access to training and supports that could change the way they do business. The financial cost of taking care of your mental health is a prevailing issue in Canada. It's why we wanted to make this episode. The cost of therapy sessions can get fairly high, not to mention medications or continuing care. Dave, of course, recognizes this, but he doesn't want a price tag to deter people from seeking care. So, like, mental health is like a health issue, so the cost varies a lot. It depends on your diagnosis, the the types of supports you have available, your personal circumstances. Um, If you have access to an employee family assistance program, that might help cover the cost of some sessions or subsidize access. I mean, I wouldn't get too worried about cost of supports and stuff. Of course, if you have the resources to pay for it yourself, it's going to be a bit easier, but there's programs and supports. There's free or subsidized community-based programs as well. We have peer navigators that can help you navigate the mental health system if you need it. So it might take a little extra time and connections, but I wouldn't get too set on costs. I mean, once mental illness is recognized, help it can make a difference in about 80% of the people who are affected. So don't let fears of cost or a treatment plan get in the way of taking that first step. And despite the shortcomings of our current system, Dave had a very clear message for us. If you think you should speak to someone about your mental health, do it. And if you've been trying to get the help that you need, keep trying. I'm not, again, not a mental health professional. I'm not an expert by any means. But the earlier you can address mental health problems or challenges, like the more success you're going to see. So people often worry about asking for help because there can be stigma around mental health problems. They believe that asking for help is admitting something that's wrong with them. Some people worry about how they're going to be perceived or that they should just be able to pick themselves up by their bootstraps, so to speak. So asking for help means that you want to make changes or take steps to new health goals. And it should be a celebrated feeling when you reach that point. We should celebrate it. We should encourage it. We should encourage people to get help. The first steps are often the toughest. So one of the first things you can do is if you have a support network, you can count on reach out to them, share how you're feeling. If you have a family doctor, they are a great resource that can help link you to other professionals if needed for assessment. They can might be able to do assessments themselves, connect you with medications to try. Many employers have employee family assistance programs that provide assessment and counseling and help can help start you building those recovery plans as well. But again, it's not just for people that have access to these resources, there are community supports available. So if you don't know where to go, like one of the best resources you can call right now is call 211. If you're ready to talk to someone about mental health, if you are ready to start seeing if you can access short-term counseling or mental health services, 211 can help connect those to you. We have a great drop-in single session counseling that's available, which provides like great free drop-in counseling services. They have therapists that will help you focus on your strengths and connect you to other services available as well. And these drop-in counseling sessions are free. You can access them remotely if that's what you're more comfortable doing in a pandemic. There's about five or six, maybe more locations where these drop-in supports are available as well. If you need someone to talk to right away, again, 2-1-1 can help connect you to this distress line. So if we're talking Edmonton, the distress line provides immediate support for people in a crisis. Um, and it can provide emotional support, or they can help caregivers who have, or someone in their lives that are immediate as well. So again, 
recognizing mental illness, taking those first steps to improvement are so important. There's a lot of ways to get into the mental health system, but the first step is admitting that maybe it's time to talk to someone. It's easy for mental health to spiral out of control. Like the impact of an undiagnosed mental illness can be devastating both inside and outside of our homes. Like your relationships suffer. It can be overwhelmingly difficult to work or go to school. Your household finances can become precarious as well. If you don't seek those mental health supports or services you need, maybe it's due to stigma or whatever, it can really, really hurt you. And if you can avoid a crisis or letting things spiral out of control and take more proactive steps, it can make a really big difference. Dave also has recommendations for folks who might not be dealing with a mental health issue themselves, but want to be better prepared to support the people around them. When I shared some of the stats, when I say like, one in four people in Canada are having a mental health problem or experiencing mental illness. So this is our friends and our neighbors. I think one thing we can really do to help address stigma uh, is learn about mental health and learn about mental illness. And so if you have the resources, the Mental Health Commission has a program called Mental Health First Aid, which is a great resource to make you so you can help people and learn a little bit about uh, mental illnesses, how to refer people to programs successfully. And there's also some really great community resources as well. So uh, you can learn a little bit about the impact of trauma and how trauma impacts people's lives, how it can affect a child's brain. Again, the more we can learn about mental health and how we can support each other and how everyone works a little bit different. I think it's really important to just, if you have the opportunity and the time to learn, there's programs available that you can pay for that you can attend for free as well. There are links to all the resources Dave recommended in the show notes, including 211 and the Community Mental Health Action Plan. Dave mentioned many different kinds of support someone could access to help their mental health, but perhaps the first kind of support that comes to mind is speaking to someone in one-on-one therapy. So the next voice you're going to hear is from a mental health therapist. Her name is Dr. Elsie Lobo, and she works at the Family Center. Here she is with Rebecca. So my name is Elsie Lobo. I am the manager of therapy and mental health services at the Family Center. And so in my role, I oversee all of the different therapy programs and all of the work that we do in the community with our therapy programs through the different programs, it really helps me see the impact of the work that we do in the community, the importance of supporting people and their mental well-being in the community. And then I also get to see, I think, in my role too, where where some of the challenges are, right? Where we have difficulty providing enough services or adequate services, where some of those gaps are in how we serve people and how we serve communities. We've already discussed the difficulties of finding the right care for you. But once you've found it, even the logistics of booking appointments, commuting, and arranging for childcare can be a challenge. This is why Elsie and the Family Center work to promote a more community-based approach. So we have therapists and, like I said, in different community settings. So one of the programs that we are with is the United Way program, All In For Youth. And so part of that funding helps us to put mental health therapists as well as success coaches and um, social workers in schools. The All In For Youth program works with Edmonton Public and Catholic schools to provide social supports to students and their families. 
Since it began in 2016, All In For Youth has provided folks with therapy, social workers, lunch programs, after-school programs, and more. All free of charge and all based out of the school itself. That's been a really big piece, I think, of expanding accessibility, right? When we can put people right in communities, so which helps already take away, right? Financial barriers, transportation barriers, childcare barriers. There's so many different barriers, even scheduling. You know, our therapists are right there and easy to be connected to families. That in and of itself, right? When we can be there in communities, really supporting, really being available to people. I think that's one really big way. We also have drop-in counseling programs. We have therapists here at the Family Center in our downtown office. So if principals or teachers see the need for either a student or a family where they're having a lot of difficulty accessing services, or maybe there is some sort of ongoing trauma or past trauma or just barriers overall for them, or they're struggling overall, even with attending school, um, they can connect them to our therapists who can then meet with that student and then meet with the families as well. And they also can help when there are crises, right? So if students are, let's say, having suicidal ideation or self-harming or maybe even conflict with other people or conflict in their families, that there's someone like a safe person at the school who they can talk to and who's trained in helping to support these things. And they're right there. So do you find that, you know, youth are more willing to talk to counselors because they're on site? I think so. I think it's scary sometimes for youth to come into a strange office building downtown. You know, you don't really know who you're meeting or what to expect. But when you've got someone in your school, they're they're part of the school community, right? They're connected to the teachers. They're You see them walking through the hallways. Um, I know a lot of our therapists talk about like high-fiving students when they're coming in or just seeing them in the hallway, right? And so even if a student isn't a formal client of theirs, really getting therapy services, they still will cross paths with a therapist. And so that becomes someone who's familiar. And I think it also helps reduce the stigma because they may see other students going into that office or coming out or or that this person is like an okay person to be with before they actually have to face something like being in session. So I think it helps take away some of that stigma. It takes away the unknown. feels a lot safer, I think, for adolescents when it's someone they're familiar with. Of course, the All In For Youth program is just one of the community-based programs the Family Center offers. There are also options for those of us not connected to a K-12 school. But then we also have people placed at different places, like, for example, the Pride Center or Family Futures we connect with on the south side. Or when the libraries are open, we've got them in different libraries and places like that that are out in the community. And those are really nice because it's free for people to come for single session counseling. And then we can connect them to to subsidized counseling program if they need something longer term. Being where people are, again, I think there's so many barriers involved in people coming downtown to an office building, scheduling appointments ahead of time. And so by trying to make ourselves accessible and available, it's helpful because especially once we kind of meet with them and if they find it helpful, then we can help connect them to a therapist who can see them for a number of more sessions and maybe do some more intense work. But getting in, I think, is a big barrier and us being out there helps people to get in. The Family Center conducts well over 200 free sessions of therapy per month just through their drop-in programs. But we know that the actual need for mental health support is still much higher. We asked Elsie to share some recommendations on how we can make mental health more accessible in the Alberta Capital Region. We're doing a lot and we're doing the best we can. You know, we still right now I see our therapists in schools, they're being utilized a lot, right? Their caseloads are very full and it's it's only still the first half of the school year. 
And so there are a lot of children and students and youth and families who do need services. And so when our people are full, they may have no place to go still, um, as much as we do our best to still connect with them and, and them served. And so I think we do need more people out in the community. We need more people, not only just in schools, but also just in community, easy places to refer people to where they can access services at an affordable rate or at a subsidized rate. People even in community centers. I was going to say too, with poverty too, there's such a reciprocal relationship with mental health and poverty, right? Of course, if you're struggling with your mental health, it's harder to maintain um, employment and all of those things. But then on the other hand too, when you're in poverty, that's going to increase your stress levels. It's going to lead to a more mental health symptoms. So it becomes quite a cycle. And so I think it's so important too with mental health that we're not only serving mental health, right? That our mental health services maybe come as a, in connection with other supports. I mean, of course, ensuring people have housing or food, you know, their basic needs are also being met because it is, it's really hard to just isolate mental health as something when people are also struggling in so many other areas because all those other areas are going to impact their mental health. Links to learn more about the Family Centre's programs, including their online therapy offerings, are in the show notes. So far, we've talked about access to mental health support largely in terms of affordability, and while being able to afford care is certainly important, it's not the only factor that goes into accessibility. We also need to ensure that mental health support is appropriate. The Mental Health Commission of Canada points to a number of studies that say clients have better outcomes when they receive culturally competent treatment. That is, when the therapist has a strong understanding of the client's cultural background, ethnicity, or faith. Your background can say a lot about where your mental health issues stem from and how they might be best addressed. Colonialism, racism, gender identity, living as a refugee. These are all very personal experiences that not just anyone can understand and address clinically. Eric Krepstekes is someone who specializes in this area. He is, among other things, a registered psychologist working with the Family Center. My name is Eric Krepstekes, and I am the, well, I work as a few different uh, positions here at the Family Center. So I am a mental health therapist. So I serve clients that come in, in our drop-in and our ongoing programs. And then I also am an intern mentor here. So I will help the new interns when they're coming in, they're finishing their last year of their master's program in counseling psychology, helping them out with any kind of ethical issues that come up or ethical decision-making. So just getting them ready to be therapists outside into the community themselves. Um, I also have a private practice too. So geared kind of a little bit more to people that are using benefits or have uh, maybe a third-party funding or something like that to access uh, therapy as well. As a practitioner and a mentor, Eric was able to give us a well-rounded perspective on how clients can find success once they've chosen to begin therapy. There's a big portion of therapy and therapeutic success that's involved with the relationship with your therapist. Therapy isn't a paint-by-numbers type of thing where you just, if you do this for this specific thing, for this problem, then it'll be okay. It, it doesn't 
work out that way. And so that flux happens. And I think you have to be, you have to accommodate that. And I think that's just with, with anybody, but then not only that is you have all this, this other side of culture, which is going to affect how each one of those different effects will then relate to the individual. So I think giving that allows for more effective therapy because it gives you um, a level of comfort with the person that you're talking with. Comfort means vulnerability. You can be open. You can feel like you can be honest um, that that person, while they might not share maybe specifically your culture, but they will hopefully be able to show some empathy and care in that, you know, what you're experiencing is important and matters. And so I think that's why it means, it means a lot to, to have that focus and, and have that ability to, to connect culturally. We have therapists that speak different languages and therapists that have many different cultures. And so hopefully that helps to connect. Not every single time are you able to match up therapists like that and, and everything, but potentially that's an option as well. So I think that's helpful. We do have translation services here. So we can have a translator come in, sit in in sessions. And not only that, even providing other services, we can do translations for documents and things like that. But for therapy, actually just having someone in the room that can relay what the therapist is saying and then get that chance to kind of have that face-to-face. So that's one thing that we can do. We can offer that for most people. In terms of uh, Indigenous-specific, we have um, a knowledge holder that actually is with, that works with us at our downtown location. So she offers uh, a lot, like, I mean, just a wealth of information in terms of what, what would be the best way to go about aspects in therapy? Because as therapists, I think we get a sense of working with different cultures, cultures that are not our own, and how to go about therapy with them. But it is nice to have that extra little bit of information to, to know, you know, how do I navigate this specific thing? And so she will let us allow us to be involved in a lot of different things. So like um, doing some sweats and the curb pickings. Uh, and then we have a now virtual smudging that we do every day here if you want to join in or not. But we also, uh, we used to do that in person. Some of those things we can also incorporate into therapy. So a couple different therapists have uh, their kits that they'll use to smudge with. And they'll actually do that sometimes with clients before sessions or at the end of sessions. So that offers just that extra little piece that can kind of help a little bit the process and comfort and connect in the way I think that that client connects rather than just trying to fit something the way the therapy says it needs to be this way. We can kind of fit that more towards that specific person and what they practice and what's you know important to them. Eric is among the few black men working in the mental health field, and he's noticed how your identity, specifically race and gender, can influence your ability and likelihood to seek care. He shared some of the work he's done to address this gap. So I am connected to the Black Therapist Network. So it is essentially just, it's a nonprofit organization that its goal is to support access, really. Kind of twofold goal, I think. One is a place for Black therapists to connect with each other, to have discussion about, you know, race and implication and how that connects to therapy, how that manifests. And then that second goal of accessing the community and then helping provide, you know, that support allowing people to feel that that sense of comfort. I guess they're connecting with someone that understands a little bit what it's like to be a minority. So the the, the network will actually connect with 
other organizations and provide like consultations as to how they would maybe integrate certain aspects into their organizations. They also have some psychoeducation that they'll do in schools to other aspects of the community, just talking about race and talking about mental health. And then there's also a directory. And so the directory is there. So if you are interested in therapy and you are looking to have a Black therapist, you can look there and you can connect and see. There's a little bio for each therapist there. And there's about, I think, close to about 40 therapists on there now. And so a little background on kind of, you know, what their journey has been and how they practice therapy. And then you can connect with them. A lot of people in the Black community tend to withdraw much more often than do other cultures, other races. So that's an interesting thing as to how, how to connect them more to therapy. One thing to highlight is the field tends to be largely female and largely white. And it, I think to the point of it's about in the 88% range of therapists are going to be typically white women, right? And so there's a misrepresentation there for color for um, males, actually. And I think that that side of things creates another aspect, another barrier where what does that say about a man's access as well? What does that say about can a man be a healer? Can a man be viewed as someone that's showing compassion or, or being empathetic? Is that something that can be shown? And, and I think there's that systemic aspect that I think comes in play there where men aren't usually seen as having those skills or being able to offer those things. And increasing that ability for men to maybe become therapists, for men to be a little bit more open to having, to going to therapy, to having a male therapist, I think all starts to shift that stigma. Eric highlights how having someone who can relate to your experience can increase your chances of seeking care. But it goes deeper than that. Representation isn't just something that's nice to have to get someone through the door. It can also have a profound effect on what sort of treatment works best for you. I think even just going from that North American or Eurocentric viewpoint, I think that's the viewpoint that therapy was, the therapy that we provide tends to have originated from. And when you start to look at other cultures, they start to not fit that mold a lot of the time. It doesn't necessarily encompass all the different aspects of culture and and the drastically different way that even mental illness will present. When you look at like an individualistic culture versus a collectivist culture, they present very differently. Sometimes we can look at someone and think, oh my goodness, you need to, you know, build up your own confidence and you need to be an individual and you need to be, you know, the strong person by yourself. Does that translate to a more collectivist culture? Maybe not so much, right? So if your therapy is based upon that, it might not necessarily translate. So it's kind of like we, we need that increased awareness. We need to have those people that are in our, in our network, in our lives, like a knowledge holder, you know, like a different cultural network that us as therapists, not only that we have these networks, but that we also connect with these networks so that we do gain that sense of understanding because it's therapy, we, we keep kind of, touching on this theme, right? It's, it's so unique to each person. And I think our awareness needs to reflect that. So those little things we can try and do and putting those people in our lives and in our way, you know, can really change. And I think improve is that always seeking that ability for awareness and understanding. 
Like our other guests, we asked Eric about how we could help increase access to mental health support for folks living in poverty. And Eric had a similar perspective to Elsie. Mental health care is an important thing to provide, but it shouldn't be the only thing. There are going to be, I think, different beliefs of the idea of Maslow's hierarchy. Not every single, I think, person in mental health will take it the same way. So I just preface this in that. But essentially, the pyramid looks at kind of that you need to meet your basic needs in order to then reach more of the kind of existential needs. And so somebody who is looking at who am I as a as a father that's a harder problem to tackle or a harder thing for someone's mind to kind of go through if they cannot, you know, feed themselves or they're looking for shelter. It's tough to kind of look at that higher level way of thinking if you kind of aren't meeting basic needs because that needs to be your priority. Therapy is a great tool that accompanies the social supports for people in poverty, but it can't be kind of like the only thing. And one difficult thing is we see a lot of influx from people that, are contacting the distress line or people that are contacting from hospital care or something where they are looking because they've something bad has happened and they're looking to improve it. And while we obviously will always try and help, therapy isn't going to necessarily be able to fill those needs that are needed right now. You know, that rehab is maybe what you need or a shelter is what you need. You need the food bank right now not necessarily sitting here and going through, you know, for the, I I feel like for the uh, traditional psychological thing, like we don't need to talk about your, you know, how your parents were and how your relationships with your parents are when you need to eat right away. So therapy can work in conjunction with all of that when you're working with the aspect of the population that's struggling so much with poverty. This isn't an episode where we can neatly sum up the moral of the story and call it a day. Honestly, we've probably raised more questions than we've answered, but we have learned some important lessons. Dave highlighted Alberta's need for a better connected mental health support system. Elsie stressed that supports should be placed where the need is, in the community, close, affordable, and readily available. And Eric noted how therapy should take an intersectional approach, supporting folks with diverse and complex identities. Each of these professionals are building towards a more responsive and accessible mental health support system in their own ways. As for the rest of us, we've got work to do as well. Everyone we spoke to mentioned how we collectively need to destigmatize getting help. And beyond that, we can all take steps to be more aware of the supports out there, for ourselves and for those around us. You can also donate to organizations and programs that are offering free or subsidized mental health care, like All In For Youth. And finally, there is absolutely a role policymakers must play in creating more accessible care for all. Margaret Eaton, the CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association, had this to say following our last federal election. Quote, Rather than keep building on a system that responds to crisis, we need to rethink our mental health system so that it can promote mental wellness and prevent mental illness from taking hold in the first place. Our work starts today. Let the 44th Parliament be the parliament that transforms mental health care in Canada once and for all. This has been Peace Out Poverty, a podcast by Gen Next. This episode was hosted by me, Tokumba Adebui. 
It was written by myself and Andrew Mason. Interviews were done by Rebecca Price. This episode was produced by Castria. Gen Next is a volunteer committee of United Way of the Alberta Capital Region. If you'd like to learn more or find out how you can be a part of the plan to end poverty, visit myunitedway.ca.